suppose I shouldn't say that this is the, the most fun part of the conference for me, because it's the only part where I'm talking, and that would be sort of self-serving. But I do really enjoy having these great speakers come in and, and good friend, I don't know, 10 plus years that Carl and I have, have known each other and been friends. So it's a real delight to have him in here and such a, a fascinating, stimulating talk. And hopefully it will whet your appetite to come back tomorrow. Of course, if you have your own church in the area, you can go there. But uh, if not, and if, if this is your church, we, we hope to see you here for the sessions. I know that some people are still coming in from the lobby and they'll find their seats. We're going to try to, uh, I guess the we in this is me, because it's up to me, to get us done by 8.30. And if you would be gracious when I close us at 8.30 to let Carl and Katrina slip out, as you can imagine, he's, he's uh, getting ready to, to speak three times tomorrow and have a full day. So it will be a way to bless him, to help bless us tomorrow if we can let him head out without any questions tonight. But he'll be around after the service tomorrow. So this conversation that I'm going to have with Carl is also going to be on the podcast, Life in Books and Everything, so you can find it there. And for those of you who are listening to this later, uh, this is a part of the Faithful Conference on a Saturday night with Carl Truman at Christ Covenant Church. So greetings and salutations, as I like to say. And uh, since it is part of the podcast and people have... Uh, have uh, given some of their, their good resources toward the podcast for me to mention them. Let me mention our sponsors. I'm sure there's something that Karl Marx would have to say about uh, mentioning the podcast sponsors, but Crossway, and I uh, want to highlight their ESV Chronological Study Bible, and uh, they make a lot of good study Bibles, of course, and we love Crossway, and you can visit their website, and grateful for their partnership. Also, Desiring God, a new book by... John Piper, Foundations for Lifelong Learning Education in Serious Joy. So both of these are new releases. So thank you to Crossway and to Desiring God. Carl Truman, welcome. Glad you're here. So you were mentioning in the talk this evening, of course, that you're, you're from England and you gave us some wonderful illustrations. I love about the the, the fox and the chicken. Some of these people know from sermon illustration that a year or so ago, my son got a chicken at a white elephant, you know, Christmas party, you give a ha-ha funny gift, and he got a, a live chicken. He texted us, which he doesn't usually do, a lot of texts, which he also doesn't do. It was, it was one of the most exciting days of his life to be given a chicken, which is sadly... I don't know if I can say with the Lord, but in wherever chickens go, <laughs> um, did not go into our bellies. We just didn't know how to take care of a chicken, but a fox did not get it. So you gave us a little bit of background. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about just reflecting on how do you think that your upbringing, whether being English, uh, being rural, being not the upper class, I think would be safe to say, how you think that's shaped you and your outlook on things? Oh, that's a huge question. Um, Very postmodern uh, yeah. sort of standpoint epistemology, yeah, but just tell I'm us English, so I'm trying to think of a way of dodging the question and talking about anything but myself. Because that's a very American question to an Englishman, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I grew up at, well, my, I grew up in a very loving but a, not a Christian home. Uh, my lasting memories are uh, my parents, both my parents left school at 16, but were determined that I was going to go to college. So, dad, mum and dad taught me a great love of books and also were of that generation that thought that getting a good education was the secret to mm. getting a good job moving on in life. So there's certainly that positive impact. My dad wanted me to be a medical doctor, and I've sometimes done the Freudian thing on myself and thought, is, was getting a PhD away? I knew I'd let my dad down, but at least it was a doctorate. He could actually call me a doctor. Uh, my school was very, I, I went to a very traditional boys' school. It was a state-run school. It's what they call a grammar school. Uh, very traditional. I did uh, Latin from the age of 11. Mm had a sort of standard grammar school education. Team sports were very important. I did not thrive at team sports. I'm more of a, a loner in a lot of ways. But team sports were important for, for making you realize that you're part of a team. Mm -hmm. 
that the individual is not the be-all and end-all. That definitely shaped my thinking. I became a Christian my first year at university. I'd heard Billy Graham preach. Uh, When I was 17, I was taken to a Billy Graham rally by my best friend, who was later my best man, a very charismatic, uh, Pentecostally Anglican. Uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever actually written anything that has criticized charismatics. Mm. And that's because I'm very grateful to my charismatic friend. It was not the Reformed Presbyterians who told me about Jesus. It was the charismatic Anglicans. And I've always felt very important to be grateful to people who've been kind to you and done good things for you. So, but it was reading the books. It was reading books by J.I. Packer, particularly God's Word, that brought me to to faith. Say more about, of course, in, in Charlotte. I don't know if you've ever been to the Billy Graham library here in Charlotte, it's, it's worth visiting, and he, he's buried there, and his childhood home is brought out from the, the country, to, so it, it's nice to, to walk through. So this is, is Billy Graham country. Say a little bit more about, do you remember what he was, what he was preaching on, or what it was? No. Uh, the American very, accent, very the very southern... Very recollection uh, of it, but it, it did, it made me want to go to church. So I attended the local, I attended my friend's Anglican church, the sort of charismatic Anglican church. And then it was when I went up to, I went to the University of Cambridge and I started attending Eden Baptist Chapel yeah. where the preacher was, an, I have to qualify what I'm going to say because of the way the story ends. But it's a sad story. It is, you know the story yeah, I'm going to yeah. tell. The, the preacher was a guy called Dr. Roy Clements. I still think that I probably learned more about preaching and more about, uh, theology from the sermons I listened to from him. But I, was, I attended Eden for two and a half years when I was at Cambridge. Tragically, he left his wife and ran off with uh, his young male assistant and sort of immersed himself in, in the That's very public. It's not some yeah, it's not a con- yeah. It made the front page of the British national press at the time right. it happened because he was considered to be... One the of the next, great preachers in the land. Yeah, yeah, he was considered to be the next John Stott. He was of that sort of stature nationally. Um, but I learned a huge amount from him, and I think his preaching really mm. solidified my thinking on a whole host of points. You talk about being a doctor. One of my, my family's least favorite dad jokes, and I have many, but one is like a few weeks ago, my son really cut his, his thumb with a Cutco knife. He had to go to the ER, and whenever there's some kind of medical you know, diagnosis or something, I walk in and say, I, I am a doctor. <laughs> Dad, stop. You're not a real doctor. <laughs> you wrote a big paper on something. Um, uh, going back to becoming a Christian, uh, a three-part question. You can answer this theologically or personally, but uh, just give briefly, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Protestant? Because you have lots of you know, good Catholic friends. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Protestant? Why are you a Presbyterian? I'm a Christian because I became convicted of the truth of the Bible and convicted of the need of Christ as my saviour. Uh, good. That's good. Why so, are you a Protestant? Yeah. Uh, why am I a Protestant? Uh, it's not because I can't remember why I'm a Protestant. I'm trying to think, <laughs> which of the reasons shall I give? Uh, I because think, didn't you say one time that, uh, I think in a conversation yeah. or something, you said, if someone's going to not be Catholic, they need yeah. to have a reason. Yeah. Well, my reasons, I think, would be twofold. Uh, justification by grace through faith. And the second reason would be, uh, now, I know that the concept of the clarity of Scripture needs to be qualified and is, is often not as straightforward as many people think it is. But I think Scripture is not as obscure, if I can mm. put it that way, as Catholicism claims it is in order to bolster the authority of the church and specifically of the Pope. Uh, I'm not a Catholic because uh, I think above all, in fact, I was having a, I got into a discussion with Catholic friend Erica Bakioki on this. Also she, on my podcast, so just check She's it out, a yes. wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, but you know, she was chatting, why aren't you a Catholic? And I was saying, because of Mary. And she said, well, that amazes me. I thought it would have been because of the real presence. And, and for her, the issue is, is Christ truly present in the sacrament? If he is, you've got to be a Catholic. For me, I, I, I tilt towards Machen that I, I think the problem with the Catholic Church is that the gospel has been buried under so much extraneous stuff. And I think Mary would be 
the great example of that for me. Uh, and I'm open to, certainly open to Catholic friends saying to me that Protestantism has not given Mary the honor that she should be given. I mean, she's the, the, the mother of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, all generations should call her blessed. I think Protestants in reaction to Catholicism have marginalized her as a biblical figure. But the amount of weight that is placed upon Mary to me, wow, if, if the church is going to be able to define that, it can pretty much define anything it wants. You can be a co-redemptrix, being, yeah. a co-mediatrix, and of course, Catholicism in the U.S. is the most Protestant kind of Catholicism, yeah. meaning you go to Africa, you go to South America, yeah. Latin America, it's incredibly syncretistic and, and very much so with yeah. Mary. What I've noticed among people I know, who, well, in my church in Philly, there were a lot of congregants who were former Catholics. And I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I mean they were ordinary people. They just wanted to go to a church where the Bible was believed and seriously taught. Mm-hmm. The friends I have who have converted to Catholicism have tended to be intellectuals, attracted by the liturgy and attracted by some of the, the philosophical slash social teaching kind of and stuff. Sometimes as Protestants, we haven't done our people any favors because we sort of, somebody comes and they says, oh, Anselm, I, where was he? My, well, he I, I want to say he's one of our guys. And I yeah. know there's differences there. But uh, if, if you haven't opened up the, the history of the church before 1517 or something and someone starts digging around in there, they say, well, if I, if, if I got to become Catholic to get this. Then. Yeah, yeah. So why Presbyterian? There aren't very many in England. It's plain teaching of the word of God. Well, here, here. Well, a couple of things. One, again, going back to my talk, I think you should never, we should never underestimate the power of the imagination on how we think. And on my first Sunday in... Aberdeen as a PhD student. I was all on my own and I went to the Free, the Free Church of Scotland. I happened to be renting a room in a house owned by a member of the session there. And I sat uh, in a pew and at the end of the service there was a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it was a little old lady called Effie Morrison who asked me if I wanted to go home for lunch. Mm-hmm. And that meant a lot to me. And I don't want to reduce my Presbyterianism to, (laughs) hey, somebody was kind at a Presbyterian church to me. But I'd be lying if I were to say that did not have an impact on Mm. me. At the time, I was sort of Baptist, congregational in my my kind of thinking. Um, Then the other side of it was my experience of Baptist slash congregationalism was a bad one. Mm. And I became convinced that some form of connectionalism was important in order to do justice to what Paul was teaching in the the New Testament. It strikes me that elders cannot have the authority that Paul ascribes to them in the New Testament if ultimately the congregation have Mm. the decisive vote in what's going on. Did you end up in the OPC because that was a more natural fit from <laughs> Westminster, or do you know the answer to this? Is that a, is that a set-up question? That's just a lead. It's just, I just want to hear. You, you want to hear the story? Yeah. You probably know the story. I'm in the OPC because I lost a family vote. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. When, when we moved to Philadelphia for a, for a short while, uh, Katrina, my, uh, myself, and the boys attended a, a Reformed Presbyterian church. I was going through the ordination process in the Free Church of Scotland, or beginning that, that route, and the RPs were a psalm-singing denomination as the Free Church of Scotland was right. at the time. And although I'm not by conviction exclusive psalmodist, I felt a certain obligation to support the, the local psalmodists. Well, for various reasons I won't go into, that, that, that was not working. We never became members there. Uh, so we, we then started looking for another church, and there were two churches that we looked at. One of them was a church called Christ the King in Conshohocken. Mm-hmm. It's a PCA church with a man called Adam Bryce, uh, who was pastor. And I, to this day, I still think Adam Bryce might be one of the best preachers I've ever heard. Very talented preacher, a lovely fellow. Uh, and there was a church, uh, it was then Gwynedd Valley Presbyterian Church. It later became Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Uh, and we were, we were sort of divided between the two. 
And because there was no doctrinal difference between the two of them, I decided, hey, let's have a family vote. And I got two sons, and Katrina and myself, and we voted. And I voted for the PCA church. Oh. But I lost 3-1, and I, I, you know, you know, I honor elections, if you like, even I know, those I lost. Was, so, right. uh, uh, yeah, we ended up going to the, and no regrets on that front. I've been very happy in the OPC. The OPC's been very kind to me. Um, I, I, I like the fact that in, in my 20, nearly 20 years of being in the OPC, both as a member and then as a minister, it's been a comparatively peaceful mm-hmm. denomination. Uh, so, very comfortable in the OPC, but well, no, my no first she, choice was the yes. PCA. I, I love the OPC. I met my <laughs> wife at an OPC church and have family in the OPC. If you ever want to come, I don't know. They talk about swimming the, the Tiber or something. I don't know what swimming the Schuylkill. I don't know what river <laughs> would, would demarcate the OPC to the PCA, but uh, we're, we're glad to be on the same team. I, I want to go back to, I didn't mean to ask so many questions about Catholicism, but it makes me think, and I know Carl writes for First Things, which is... Uh, a Catholic journal, really influential, and but you know friendly to evangelicals and to serious Jews as well. And uh, I know some of them; you know them a lot better. Uh, and so those would be a lot of your your friends. I mean, I, I've tried to thought think: is it does it say something meaningful about our time, or is it just a a, a coincidence of history that at the moment the six let's say conservative justices on the Supreme Court are all Roman Catholics. Uh, the only Protestant is maybe the, you know, is one of the liberal, and uh, you know, she defines herself as non-denominational Protestant, so I don't know how ru- deep that Protestantism runs, but does, does it say something? Is there something about you know, intellectual heft in American culture that uh, highly intellectual Roman Catholicism is carrying the way in, in, in a sense that evangelicalism isn't anymore? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Uh, there's, there's probably numerous factors come into play uh, in, into the reason why Catholicism has proved to be so intellectually strong in the legal and, and ethical spheres. I do think there's a part of the sociology of America is America was, was a very Protestant country for a long, long time. And I think what happens when a country is, is default Protestant, it makes Protestants lazy, mm. for a better word. You know, if the country simply, if, if the moral intuitions of the country track with your own moral intuitions, why bother developing ways of thinking about morality and ethics? Uh, you can follow, kind of count on the cultural current yeah, to do the work for yeah. you. Yeah. And then when the cultural winds change 180 degrees, in the space of 20, 25 years, you're very, very ill-prepared to handle that. Now, praise God, a lot of what Catholic thinkers did in the areas of ethics uh, and moral theory is, is not distinctively Catholic. In, you know, it's not tied to Marian dogma or transubstantiation. Right. So there's much there that Protestants can use to their benefit and profit. Uh, but I think Catholicism, just being more of an outsider religion, was more self-conscious. Hmm. Uh, and and it, it, it pans out in various ways. I, I, my, my good friend, you know Fran Mayer. Fran's a very close friend. Uh, Fran Mayer, he's a Catholic. Uh, I asked him maybe 18 months ago whether he was seeing the same kind of anger in Catholicism that seemed to be burning at the heart of evangelical Protestantism in America. And he said, not really. And then he made a very interesting comment. He said, but of course, he said, we never thought we owned the country. And I thought that was very insightful, that when you have a, a church culture that really thinks the country belongs to it, and suddenly the, the country doesn't belong to it anymore, well, when people have something stolen, feel they've had something stolen from them, they tend to be very angry about it. And it struck me as a very insightful comment that I also think plays into answering the question you asked about why are we so badly Yeah, prepared? and I think it's for better and worse. I mean, I think it, it leads uh, evangelicals to, to, to want to do culture reclamation yeah. in, in, in a good sense, and at times it leads to this kind of undue anger or anxiety yeah. because of yeah. that sense yeah. that weren't we kind of the ones yeah. in charge, yeah. and there was a, a default mainline Protestantism And so you write about a lot of these kinds of issues. Two-part question. 
I'll let you define the term first, and then you can tell me if you are one or not. What is a culture warrior, and are you one? Um, David French seems to think I am. <laughs> yeah, true. But he also seems to think I'm a theologian and a philosopher as well, neither of which uh, apply. Um, I think culture warrior is, I think it's generally a pejorative term, and we tend to use it with reference to the people who are pressing for things in the culture of which we do not approve. It doesn't seem to me that the culture war is being waged by those who wish to maintain the old status quo. I think to defend a status quo is a different strategic move than to try to tear down the status quo. So I would say the culture warriors are really on the left. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want to cite Nietzsche too positively but you know, Nietzsche has this interesting, in his, in his book, The Genealogy of Morals, where he's talking about change in moral codes, he, 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 he wrestles with what he sees as the shift between good and bad and good and evil. Uh, you might say, well, what's the difference between good and bad and good and evil? Well, Nietzsche says, well, what's interesting is this, that the good man of the old culture becomes the evil man of the new culture. Mm-hmm. The bad man of the old culture becomes the, the good man of the new culture. And he's talking there about strength versus weakness. The old strong man becomes the, bad, the evil guy. The weak becomes the good guy. I think in the culture war, the culture, warrior, the, the culture warriors on the left have a vested interest in presenting those who I think simply want to see basic standards of decency maintained in society as being somehow sinister, warlike, and aggressive. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm a culture warrior to dislike walking down M Street in Georgetown in Pride Month, as I did a couple of years ago, and thinking, this is filth. There is pornographic filth in these windows that wouldn't have been there 10 years ago. Am I a culture warrior to object to that? I don't think so. I'm simply somebody who wants to say, actually, I think there are decent ways that human beings should behave and interact with each other, that the old civic Christianity, Mm -hmm. for all of its faults, supported and was therefore a good thing to that extent. Wanting to maintain those does not make you a culture warrior. Yeah. I, I've said before in writing and maybe publicly that I th- I'm sure when I was younger, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would have spoken more negatively about any kind of cultural Christianity and probably would have said with a kind of quick back of the hand, well, Good riddance, mm. and you know the sooner the better. It's going to make the church stronger. It's just going to show who the real Christians are. The only thing that's fading away is just nominal Christianity. Yeah. And of course, there's an element of truth in some of that. But the naivete is, uh, you know, it, it, cultural Christianity doesn't make one a born again Christian, no. but it makes some things much more plausible. Makes society safer for children. Yeah, and so to, to wish away some, uh, where you know, one author said in, in the 60s he was writing, this is sort of a, a you know, political conservative, and he was saying in the 60s, he said, of course, Christianity in America always has been and always will be our public truth. And I think he was writing in 63, so right at the cusp of this, before, <laughs> yeah. oops. Yeah. Well, it's not the public truth, a little bit more in the South, but all of that is changing very quickly. And, and, and we're worse off because of it. You talked about the, the speed of the change. So when you think about, you know, Obama campaigning, I mean, to say he, he believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. And, yeah. and before he changes his mind, he has to, you know, kind of have Joe Biden float yeah. out the, the change. And you can speculate whether that was Obama's position, real position at the time or not. But at least he felt cultural pressure, yeah. that was not very long ago. No. Uh, the Democratic candidate said that. I don't know if any Republican candidate, even if they believe it, will, will want to touch that question at all. So the speed that this has changed, does that make you discouraged? Of course it does. And does any of it make you encouraged? <clears throat> and by that I mean when something flips so quickly, I wonder if the flip is much more shallow than we think. So wh- wh- how do you make sense of how quickly this has changed? It, it, it's possible that the flip is much more shallow than we think, but I don't think so. 
or it's possible that the holding on yeah. to the, the traditional morality was shallow for a long time, and that's why it flipped so quickly. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's more likely yeah. the case. Um, well, thanks for ruining I, my, my, my optimism. No, no, but I, I do think there are areas where we can be optimistic. Uh, I think Pride Month was much more muted this year than it was the year before. And even reading the, the, reading the gay press on Pride Month, voices are starting to emerge amongst the, uh, particularly the LGB community, let's forget the T for a minute, saying, why do we need a month? Veterans only have a day. We, we, we just need a day to celebrate our civil rights. Well, you know, we might not want them to have a day to do that, but it strikes me that's an interesting... There's a feeling there among some that the hand has been overplayed and that there is some backlash coming. I think on the T issue as well, the, the number of... I think the T issue is doomed in the long run for a number of reasons. I think all the medical evidence points to the fact that transition surgery doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Suicide rates run roughly, last time I looked, roughly 30%, even for those who've transitioned. It doesn't make any appreciable difference. And that tells me that we have a terrible mental illness here that sooner or later society has to face up to and treat appropriately. Uh, we're seeing lawsuits emerging uh, people detransitioning. One was filed just two weeks ago uh, by a girl who, with all kinds of comorbidities, etc., goes to her doctor, and I think after one visit, the doctor puts her on uh, hormone therapy, and now she's suing because that destroyed her life. And I think the courts on the T issue, I think the courts will decide it. Mm. I think it's America... And when big cash settlements start being paid out, the science will miraculously change overnight. So I am relatively optimistic on the T. Because Britain is pushed back much more on this than America has yeah, today. Yeah, there are fights going on in Britain, but I would say the tilt in Europe is, is, to, is moving in a slightly more conservative direction, whereas America has not yet reached the limits, I think, of where it's prepared to go on this. Yeah, so that was going to be my question. Do, do you think, to use the term, do you think we're peak woke? We were talking, or is that yet to, to come? And is, yeah. there, is there some more sanity on the other side? We were talking over lunch with, with the pastors, just some of these polls for whatever they're worth that I think it was even among Gen Z yeah. Among young people, for the first time, uh, with a young cohort, the the favorability towards gay marriage has decreased ever so yeah. slightly. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't think after Obergefell it would decrease with any any age cohort, and especially you know we talked about with young men. There, there's a a sharp divergence happening if you read the social survey and the sociology between young men and young women. Young men are becoming at least identifying as more conservative. Uh, and, and some of that's in healthy ways, and some is a, a, you know, attracted to unhealthy yeah. influencers and the like. But do you see sanity? Do you see the fever breaking? I think it could do. I think the Supreme Court judgment on uh, affirmative action in higher education will have ramifications beyond higher education. Already hearing from friends who teach in the business uh, departments at Grove that, yeah, this is beginning to have an effect on how businesses now think. They've got to be very careful on some, of, on some fronts now. Uh, so I think that that decision could well put, a, uh, put the brakes on some of the more radical DEI kind of things emerging. I think the, what concerns me is that we need to make sure that we don't simply get rid of the woke of the left by producing a kind of woke of the right. Yeah. That's a real danger. And I think the emergence, even in some Christian circles, of the idea that we have no enemies to the right, that's a very sinister development. When I see Christians saying things like that, it's kind of, no, I'm sorry. If, if there's a guy out there who's teaching people to look at my wife, my granddaughter, whatever, just as a piece of meat, I don't care where he is on the political spectrum. Who wrote spectrum, the book on post-liberalism? Post is it Matthew Rose? Is that the, the name Matthew right? Rose, yeah. Very... very very insightful book yeah. that just looks, uh, it's called something like post-liberalism or the yeah. right after yeah. liberalism and yeah. just looks at these various things. As somebody said tongue-in-cheek, but it's very true, if, 
if you didn't like the religious right, wait yeah. till you see the irreligious right. That was Ross Dathod, I think. Yeah, was that Ross who said that? Ross Dathod, uh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, it, th- there, and it can be hard sometimes, PCA, OPC, yeah. they have a, you know, a, a Machen sort of instinct. The, the most conservative position is always right, but the right is even something different than conservative. I'm not, yeah. I don't want to give up the term. Conservative no. can, can mean, has more ideological roots to it, but, but there are all sorts of things, and by post-liberal, I don't mean political liberalism in America. I mean sort of the, the Western uh, Christian and Enlightenment tradition yeah. of conscience and individual rights and uh, the rule of law. I mean, you see this conversation. What, what, just expound on that a little bit more. What, what concerns you with that no enemies to the right philosophy and what's coming after some, I, I've said at times, there is a kind of, uh, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a right-wing wokeism as there is a, yeah. a left-wing. I mean, there are various things that concern me. I think from the church's perspective, the church has to be very careful that uh, she keeps her mind focused on things above and not on an, on an earthly kingdom. And that's not to say we neglect the earthly kingdom. We have duty as citizens, responsible citizens, to, to try to make sure the streets are safe uh, for men, women, and children of an evening, you know, out for a walk, it's, you know, those kind of simple things. But we need to realize that the church's task is not to bring about some kind of religious heaven on earth. And I think... Again, when you have had a close identification in, in, in America between Protestant Christianity and the nation, it can be a danger uh-huh. to get those two things confused. Now, I'm not, in saying that, impugning the motives of, of, of people who are patriotic and, and, and love the flag. I'm an immigrant. I love, you know, as all immigrants do, I love the country that's taken me in. But I want to make sure that uh, the church does not get so involved in in that kind of thing. And, you know, Christian nationalism is an interesting concept that's batted around. Now, quite often it seems to mean it's a little bit like culture warrior. Okay, you're pro-life, so you're a Christian nationalist. It, it has a sort of silly, anybody just to my right application. But I do think Christian nationalism is real. I do think there are some real Christian nationalists out there. And my worry with them is not that they pose an existential threat to American democracy. I think they're a tiny minority. They're very big and loud online, but they can't even get a Supreme Court justice elected. Where they pose a real danger, I think, is to denominations and congregations. They could do a lot of damage. They're not going to do a lot of damage to the nation, but they could do a lot of damage in churches if they lead churches to get the gospel confused with a particular political platform, particularly a party political platform. And, and, you know, it's it's another conversation. I'll have you on the podcast another time, but... Because Christian nationalism, it was largely a term of derision, mm. and then people began to own it. And for many people, maybe some people here, they hear the term, they think, well, I, I want to make the nation as Christian as yeah. possible, and I want to influence our nation. Yeah. And it was founded by a lot of Christian people and a lot of Christian principles, and we want to have Christian influence. Yeah. So that's what, that's what a, and a lot of people mean, and that's yes and amen to all of that. And then there's a you know, variations of the kind of intellectual dogma. And I'm with you. I don't think that it's going to amount to a great threat, but it will be, it will be easily brought out just like theonomy was in the 90s. Everybody's going to be a theonomist. Now it's everybody's going to be this. And so a Southern Baptist was made the Speaker of the House. And Christian nationalism is... For the next few weeks, probably. Yeah, right. As, as long as... Uh, until they have to vote on it again. All right, I'm going to, the last 15 minutes, I'm going to change this a little bit and just think a, a little bit more about ministry and life and things. But sort of a, a question to, to bridge both of those topics. At the lecture you gave in New York, was that just a week or two ago? Carl had this honor of giving this uh, prestigious lecture in New York City, did a, a fine job. Uh, somebody asked you, or did it come up? I think it was a question, something about, why don't you like worldviews? <laughs> it wasn't worldviews. Somebody texted that question in. It was an absolute setup, wasn't it? I know. It? Yes. Somebody read a text. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and you gave a good answer of yeah. what's, what, what's good. And, but why, why don't you use the term worldview? Or what do you think yeah. is, 
not as helpful about yeah. that term. Well, I, my alternative term is one I borrow from the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. He has this rather, it's a rather awkward term, social imaginary. What makes it awkward is he's using imaginary as a noun rather than adjective. So it's an inelegant phrase. What he's trying to get at with social imaginary is the way that most people live their lives and the way that most people believe the things they believe isn't the result of a self-conscious working through the arguments or a self-conscious intellectual commitment to a position about which they have been consciously persuaded. Uh, whereas I think, and I think that's true, you know, why, don't I, why do I think stealing's wrong? I've not read, well, actually, I have read, but it was not what persuaded me. I've, you know, Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Uh, it's not an argument that taught me to believe that stealing's wrong. It's the fact that when I was five, I stole something, and my mum caught me, and I was in serious trouble. And I decided, hey, I don't want to be caught by my mum doing this again. It's a really bad thing. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, why do I leave rooms through doors rather than through walls? I'm not a particle physicist. I have no idea why walls don't work for exiting and doors do. They just do. And the point Taylor's making is that so much of what we believe actually just arises out of the way we live, the way we interact, the rituals we have. My concern with worldview, and interesting that the time, the last time I was asked that question before New York was when I was in Charlotte doing head-to-head uh, -head with John Stone Street, who's a huge oh, worldview yeah, yeah, guy. Colson Center. And, and I yeah. called him out on it in my lecture, and he picked me up on it in the Q&A afterwards. The reason I don't like worldview is I think it places too much emphasis upon the intellect. Not that the intellect isn't important. It's just not as important for what we believe as, as we might think. So, for example, use gay marriage. I, I remember in the run-up to the Obergefell decision in 2015, I was teaching at a seminary, and students would ask me numerous points during that year, can you give us some good arguments against gay marriage? To which my answer was, I'd give you half a dozen good arguments against gay marriage, but none of them are going to work because none of the people who've changed their mind on gay marriage have done so because they read an argument and it... You said one time, somebody said, we lost the argument, and you said... No, there was no argument. There was no argument, yeah. It was will and grace. It was positive presentations of, of gay couples on the TV. It's people knowing they're gay neighbors who are lovely people. It, it's, it's, it's more subtle the way we think than, than just worldview. Now, you might be able to press people back and say, well, if you hold this position, then logically you must presuppose that or you must be committed to this worldview. I have a suspicion that a lot of people would just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, I guess I must, and then carry on without That's thinking right. about it again. Right. So it would be fair to say you're not against you know, one's you know, mental frame being shaped, of course, yeah. and you believe in worldview in that sense. It's just as, as a singular category, if we as Christians think the way to you know, proof our children or to get ourselves as loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, if, if the main way we're doing that is just get these 12 worldview planks down. Yeah. Okay, do that, think that. You teach at, you know, at a liberal arts college, but you're missing the way most people come to the decisions. They're, they're not so much rational as they are rationalizing. And yeah. so when they walk away and you just won the argument and it doesn't bother them because they, they kind of think, well, I don't know. Yeah. I could probably some other smart person yeah. has another way to look yeah. at it. It's the things that make us, what, what has the world, what made you laugh? What made you cry? I've quoted so many times the David Wells line that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens not because uh, someone made you read some of the critical theorists or the Frankfurt School that you might talk about. Uh, though their ideas are important, but it comes through the media and the movies and the things that we've just instinctively started laughing at and thinking were normal. So the yeah. big question is, are we, are we powerless against those things? You talked a lot about technology. What do we, we're no. probably going to have phones. We're going to have cars. Yeah. We're going to listen to music on our you know, private setting. What do we do? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we're powerless at all. One, I think... Although it isn't the solution, realizing that there's a problem is part of the solution. 
So once you become, for example, with technology, once you become conscious that technology is actually shaping the way you think, there is a possibility of resisting that in some way. So I, I think that is certainly the case. Secondly, and I want to talk about this more tomorrow, I do think that there are intuitive dimensions to how we all live that we can capitalize on as Christians. And I used one this evening. You see, you know, you can be trashed online by you know, people anonymously or whatever. Uh, they'll never say that to your face. Why not? Because bodily interaction is different. I mean, I've not, debate isn't, live debate is not my strong suit. I've been involved in a couple of live debates in my time. My limited experience tells me that in live debates, what happens is generally the temperature goes down, right. actually. Uh, why? Because you're exchanging jokes between speeches. You're laughing. You're smiling. Uh, there is a, a human interaction that takes place there. You gravitate that, towards some common ground. Yeah, that, that helps. So I do think that there are things that, that will, can allow us to resist the sort of the disembodied, frictionless conflicts which so mark our time at the moment, if we can capitalize on them. And just, I think, to encourage folks here that we're not powerless and that you, many of you are doing more than you realize, to use this metaphor of, of liturgies, sh what shapes us, the rhythms of life, you, you go to church, you know, maybe twice, maybe three times, you, you read your Bible, you're in a, a web of, if you're blessed with a, a web of family and friends who are Christians in a, in a thick kind of culture, all of these things have reinforcing so that when the, the deceptions of, of the world hit us, that's what seems strange. Mm. And you don't quite know how to answer some of those questions when you get them, but it just doesn't feel right, as opposed to what does happen often is we have people in our churches who know the right answers, but they've long ago sort of given up their, their, their moral framework or intu their intuition. They're holding by a kind of tether, but their whole intuition is already gone where the, where the world is. What, what, what have you found with your own kids and now that they're grown, but practices you did or things that were, were helpful? We taught them basic catechism. We prayed with them. Uh, I think more than anything else, we, we, we hammered home to them that being in church on Sunday was critical importance. And I'm thinking, you know, of a, you were saying that our intuitions tell us things wrong. I remember one incident when I was away uh, I, I was away, and Katrina couldn't drive at the time or didn't have a car, so went to the church at the end of the road, which at the time was PCUSA. It was a fairly conservative one, but the boys and Katrina went one Sunday, and there was a, it was a woman preacher, apparently. Uh, and we didn't make, you know, we weren't in the game. We've never been in the game of, 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 of smashing, talking trash about churches to the kids. Uh, so we were just sitting over dinner on the Monday, and I said to the boys, how was church yesterday? And they said, well, Dad, uh, the, the preaching. I said, oh, what was wrong with the preaching? And I wondered if they were going to say it was strange to hear a woman preach. They said, preaching was really superficial. <laughs> they were like 10 and 8 at the time. I said, wow, we've never actually sat and discussed what good preaching was. We just made sure they sat under good preaching. And... I can't remember the discussion from there. I, I doubt very much if they could have pinpointed necessarily why it was superficial, but they knew it was superficial. There's an intuition. And I think, yeah, when we're shaped by the church, our intuitions are shaped. All right, we're almost out of time. What do you like to do for fun? I, I, I like to... What is Katrina? She seems fun. What does she do then? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she buys coats and jewelry for oh, fun. My uh, <laughs> uh, uh, if I didn't have to spend all my time earning money to pay for coats and jewelry, maybe I'd have time oh, to have fun. Oh, wow. No, I, 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 I have a road bike that I love to ride in the summer. I've just bought a Peloton bike that I oh, am now using trendy. to keep fit in the winter. Uh, once I've stopped my travels, which have been a bit intense for the last 18 months... I was learning and taking lessons in bluegrass banjo. Oh, so I'm aiming to get back to bluegrass banjo. Very uh, Appalachian of you. So, yeah. But I, the other thing, I just love my extraordinary we, we now travel together most of the time. That's and fun. I just love, when I'm on my road, love 
being with my wife, traveling, it's, it's, it's nice. Oh, good, on your, your bike ride. You, you remember when, uh, however many Olympics it, ago it was, and, uh, you know, the Brits won all these, you know, rowing or canoeing or cycling, mm. and who said, as long as the Brits can be sitting down while we do it, we're really, <laughs> yeah. we're really, really quite impressive. So catches it, yeah. That's Banjo our, playing and biking would definitely yeah, just qualify. Their athletic prowess is if we're seated. So yeah, yeah. thank you for living up to that. Uh, I know it's, it's very typical of maybe it's America or maybe it's just if you're in a different culture, but you know, you've been in America for a long time. What, what surprised you when you, you came here and what do you really miss <laughs> about England? One of the weird things about being an immigrant is the country you left behind changes, so you can never go back. Mm. Uh, I think of the Hausman poem, the happy highways where I went but cannot come again. So I miss the England of the 80s and the 90s. Uh, now, thankfully, my home village has not changed that much, so I can still go and get a pint at the pub. Uh, but England has changed. Uh, I think something, something's been lost. I, I feel very wistful when I think about mm -hmm. England now because so much has been lost from when I grew up there. Um, what do I find strange about America? Uh, where oh, do I begin? Well, almost, yeah. um, I remember, yeah, cheerleaders, that's very strange <laughs> to me. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I could never get over when we, we'd go to hockey games, or as we call them, ice hockey games in Philly. I could never get over the dramatic difference between the home side scoring a goal where the place just explodes and the absolute silence when the away team score a goal. But of course, it's a big country, so there aren't many away supporters. Oh, you're there. used to somebody yeah, just used drove to sort of from 50, 50, Birmingham 50, to Manchester. Yeah. To, yeah. yeah. Um, and cheese whiz strikes me as an abomination. <laughs> uh, the greatest, richest nation on earth. and. What do you do with your time? You put cheese in an aerosol can. Yes. <laughs> what are you doing? And, um, but the, the, thing I, the thing I loved about America when we came here that I feel has, has been lost, I love the can-do optimism of America when we arrived. Mm -hmm. And we arrived just three weeks before 9-11. It changed pretty quick. You know, I think that was, in many ways, 9-11. We don't know the full impact of what 9-11 did to American culture. We're too close. A lot of things I think are talked about tonight connect yeah, to 9-11 yeah. as well. I, I, I like the, the, Amer the can-do American confidence. It's a very great contrast to, to the British. Uh, yeah, you think of uh, you know, Reagan's famous morning in America. I, I don't know. I mean, not very many candidates... Of either, or want to campaign on yeah. a new day. It's, it's midnight in America, yeah. and things have never been darker. It's a it, good friend of mine, Frank Beckwith, who's professor of law at Biola, told me once that the day after 9-11, I think he drove to the FBI recruitment office. He said, I'm giving up academics. I'm joining the FBI because I want to fight these people. I think it was around about 2020, with all that was going on in 2020, he said to me, you know, if it happened today, I wouldn't bother. He said, these people are not worth fighting for. Mm. And, and that really, really seemed to him that a sea change had taken place, particularly among a rising generation of Americans that let him think, I, I don't know that I'd sacrifice myself yeah. these days. So last question to end on, because there's plenty to be genuinely discouraged about, but to end on an optimistic note, I know you have great students at Grove and, and probably... By bias selection, I trust that the, the places you go to speak feel like uh, encouraging places and you travel around. What, what do you see and, and hear that give you optimism and encouragement for the church in particular? Yeah, I think uh, young people, certainly my experience of young people at Grove, great. Young people in the church we go to at Grove, great young people. I'm encouraged on that front. Uh, I'm encouraged that so many are willing to they know that it's going to get tough, but they seem up for it. I remember years ago, Rusty Reno called me. He was, he, he was involved in some scheme, and he said, will you, will you stand with us on this? I said, sure. If you're going to go down fighting, I'll, I'm happy to go down with you. And he said, I intend to fight, but I do not intend to go down. <laughs> and that sort of struck me. Yeah, that's, that's a good attitude. Uh, and I think um, I am encouraged that 
we have small numbers, but increasingly committed and thoughtful numbers. Because if the LGBTQ movement teaches us anything, it teaches us that a small, committed group of people can transform a society. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have, among our young people, uh, the kind of talent that if it's focused and organized and it deploys itself with care, charity, and wisdom, uh, can move mountains. So yeah. I'm, incur- I'm actually... I, I don't like the term snowflake because I think young people do... I was chatting in class yesterday. I said, you know, you, have a, you guys have it a lot tougher than I had it. Uh, I have never in any workplace, secular or otherwise ever come under any heat for the mm-hmm. views I hold. Mm-hmm. That's not the world you're going into. That's, you know, I was very privileged. And all the young people there struck me as, yeah, and they're ready for it. So yeah, I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah, very and, encouraged. And there's, my sense is there are, of course there's bad churches. There's lots of good churches, lots yeah. of ordinary, faithful yeah. churches. Our friend Todd Pruitt wrote a very good article, something titled something like, you probably didn't have a bad pastor. Yeah to say, they're out there, yeah. but you probably had a pretty good yeah. pastor. Yeah. And, and I would say, to most pe- you probably had a lot of really good yeah. church people. I see yeah. the students at RTS, uh, they're not looking to, to be famous, they're certainly not looking to be rich, they wanna yeah. be committed to a local church, they believe in good doctrine and good preaching, and I see people here at this church and many others in town and in our presbytery yeah. who want the same thing. So there well, are that, reasons for optimism. That's what annoys me about I won't mention names, but you can put names to them. People who write for places like the New York Times and are always bashing Christians. These are Christians bashing other Christians and bashing the church. Now, there are bad apples in the church. There are bad players. But my experience of church has been good, faithful pastors, not being paid very much, working very hard and faithfully in small, non-prestigious congregations where the congregation themselves... It's made up of the soccer mums, the guys who give up one weekend uh, to help renovate the church, give up their time for the young people. I think we should not allow the, uh, those who've made careers out of bashing the church do not represent in their writings what is actually going on in the church in this country. Here, here. Carl Truman, thank you for being with us tonight. <laughs> We're going to be gracious uh, hosts and let Carl and Katrina leave. And let's stand and let's close by singing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.